All right, good morning, everybody. I think we got our microphone thing worked out. Now, Carol's already raising her hand, so. Carol? And Janet? Janet, do you have a question for Carol? Maybe let's have it for the, is it, is it, is it a personal question? Then let's, let's hear it. On the, like, appliances and stuff? There we go. If you're going to give a washer or dryer away, please make it new. No, thank you. If you do that, you can carry it in here. Ooh. You can you carry it to the family's house. <laughs> Janet, are you, are you, you, got a, you have a bad back or anything? Because can you carry a washer or dryer? No. Okay. No, I just want in case you didn't notice the special list out. Yes, I was going to make note. And I'm doing something. I'm doing something different this year. All right. They used to be posted downstairs. Right. I'm going to have a table out in front. Now that the green sale is over, a table in the same place yeah. with other stuff. And so you don't have to go downstairs. You can look at it. Yeah. Awesome. And if any of you have kids that have, or even husbands that want to work on Monday night, we need bodies to move all the Sunday school stuff out of their rooms and move all of the Christmas sharing. Sunday school kids always causing problems around here. <laughs> That's it. This Monday, though, right? This Monday. Yeah. This Monday. At, we start at 7, work till 8.30, and we quit at 8.30 whether we're done or not. So you can get home to watch Good Doctor. Okay. I don't know what that means, but... Okay. All right. Um, so... Today, we are going to, you know, I, um, oh, let's make sure I got this in the right order. So your, your handout there is especially long, mainly because I put a translation of a Martin Luther sermon as the beginning. It is uh, translated by John Kleinig, you know, from Australia. And he, the reason why I put this there is, is because, um, Again, really stressing this meditation that Greifenberg is doing with the biblical text. And Luther, in this sermon, basically has another way of speaking the same way. So this is more of like how to versus kind of what it is. And so this is a great read. But we're, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to kind of talk, kind of, you can skim as we kind of look through. I'm just going to go in the order of this. The, um, so the first thing, though, is it says the book of the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1. So this is a meditation on Matthew 1.1. Again, remember, Greifenberg will take one sentence, a phrase, and she'll write pages on this. And the reason why that is is because she's spending time digesting, chewing, ruminating on this word, God's word. And so Luther is, is doing the same here. Now, the book of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look in your ESV, it won't say birth of Jesus Christ. It'll say the genealogy. But the, the Greek word is the genesis, the genesis of Jesus. All right, so... Um, 
So Luther's already meditating on this word Genesis and understanding that birth is, is the idea. Okay, great. Now, um, he, gives, he gives this very two, like, two helpful understandings of how you're going to meditate. One is, or understanding Jesus himself, or the word, this Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. one is, the word is a, as a sacrament, and then as an example. Now, the word sacrament call, might cause people to, you know, get a little nervous about that. Is that what, he'll explain this, is that God's word delivers the thing. It, it's, you're not writing about something, but the thing actually is delivered through God's word. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. It delivers what it says. And so Luther will have this in the frame of mind as he's meditating on this birth story. Okay? Now, that will make sense as we kind of talk a little bit more about Greifenberg, how she is meditating with this presumption, this very Lutheran understanding of God's word, meditation, and kind of the sacramentalness of the word itself. So, okay, great. And then the next one is example, which I think everyone kind of gets. It's kind of natural for us to see kind of an example. We've got to live like Jesus, or we need to live like you know, name any of the saints in your life. Okay. But Luther is very concerned about this, is that uh, he says at the end of the first paragraph there, for Christ has been badly preached to the general Christian public only as an example of grace and presented to human eyes only as an example for imitation, just like the other saints, Peter, Paul, John, who had, and Ringo. No, wait, it's <laughs> Peter, John, Okay who have been presented to us alike as examples. Now, again, if you know a little bit about Reformation history, that's a big deal at Luther's time, is that Jesus is kind of lost into the, all the saints, all right? And especially at Christmas time, right? So, St. Nicholas, St. Lucia, those days are huge in the uh, St. calendar at t- this time, and the Christ Mass, or Christmas itself, is kind of just kind of similar in terms of celebration. Luther really flips it around. And Christmas really becomes kind of like what we understand. It's a big deal, right? Okay. So that's kind of the historical context. Now, the thing is, though, is that he says, does, does Christ then not suppress them in anything? Of course he does. I mean, it's obvious for Luther is that we don't think of Jesus just like any other saint, but we think of Jesus very... You know, he's the ultimate. So rather than um, you seeking an example of humility, Jesus delivers humility. And that's important. As, as you read God's word, you need to believe, but also you need to understand that God is delivering you something, not just an idea, not nice thoughts. Okay? So we'll actually... It, it really becomes very tangible here in a little bit. So at the end of that second paragraph, and this is so, I, I bolded this, because I speak sacramentally. That is, all the words and stories of the Gospels are sacraments of a kind. That means they're, that means they're not just like baptism and Eucharist. Sacred signs through which God works in believers what the histories signify. 
That's important for us. So it deliver, the, the words deliver the thing. And the word sacred signs, okay, we have to think about what, what is a sign? I mean, so there's different ways of understanding that word, right? Well, what, if I ask a, a young child what a sign is, what is it? Yeah, it's something on the wall that shows me where I need to go or advertisement tells me something, but it is a visual. It's a tangible. I can see it right there. Bam. Okay. But then you have all the other abstractions of like, gives meaning it, it, it you know but when you ask children what a sign is they think they think of a physical representation of something which either shows directions or shows the thing itself you know my kids favorite signs are driving by O'Hare restore if you guys ever drive 294 a lot of bald men, before and after, Brian Urlacher, Ryan Sandberg. My kids love those signs. They also like the uh, U.S. waterproofing sign. Basement got you, basement leaking got you freaking or something like that. So, they, I mean, they understand what a sign is. They're not reading too much meaning into the sign itself. They're just like, okay, it, it's, it's, you know, it's showing me something. Okay. So Luther is saying the sacred sign it doesn't show you something, but it actually delivers the thing. The word is, okay. All right, now, and he says in the middle of this progress, so the words of Christ need to be meditated on as symbols. Not symbolically, but as symbols, meaning an emblem. Okay, so Greifenberg takes the word and makes an emblem, right? That's, those are the images in the meditations. So she's understanding God's word in terms of pictures or unfolding dramas and not just little ink marks on a page that creates thoughts in your brain. She's actually thinking these are pictures, these are actual living, breathing people that are coming off the page. Okay. So, th- I mean, this is really great. By the way, I think, well, never mind. You could ask uh, old Vicar Miguel about all this stuff. He really likes this hermeneutic stuff. So, Jeanette. Hey, I'm going to ask the stupid question. Oh, no, good. I'm glad because I, uh, I, this, is kind of, this is actually pretty oh, are, sophisticated. Are we talking icons here? Mm. Icons have a way earlier. No, no, yeah, so this would have been earlier than that. But this is the same kind of premise. So icons is uh, like a, it's a window into the heavenly, right? Did she have those? And when did they? Yeah, okay, so now, so th- this, that's, a, that's a more specific term. Icon is, iconography is a type of, Kind of a, so we in the West would say you have kind of Christian art, sacred art, which you would have paintings, statuary. The East, Eastern Christianity says, yeah, okay, that's kind of like that, but this is this is more um, sacramental than just those. It's not just art, and they base the premise on, again, Colossians one fifteen. Jesus is the image of the God head. You don't know God apart from this man, Jesus. And the iconography itself is based on the, the, the veil of Veronica, 
don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's um, this legend that as Jesus is walking towards Golgotha, he trips and you know he falls, and Veronica, this woman, comes and takes a um, you know piece of fabric cloth and basically wipes the blood from his face, and it gets an imprint of his face. And so you have the image now, and that became a sign of reverence. So that's kind of the history. Very simplified. So iconography would fit into this, but it wouldn't be... So Luther would say, though, you don't get iconography without the word. So the word is actually even more primal than iconography. But that would be a result of it. Yep. Um, yeah. It's, um what he's talking about too is that would be like Christ when he says the words but then he gives parables to illustrate what the words are uh, yeah, sort of it really, it's even more basic than that is that the word is the person so like like for instance way back when we talked about Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha being two ways of meditating Martha's kind of, I mean Mary's kind of the contemplative sit at the feet of Jesus Martha is the, the practical one, is to do things. The problem is not what they're doing, it's really Martha says, she needs to do what I do. The flip side would be Mary saying to Martha, what's your problem? You should be sitting here. Well, Jesus is with them, so they already get. You can, you, Jesus teaching more about stuff is just more of Jesus if Jesus were sitting there just with you nice and quiet, it's the same. So it's like I tell little children, a little Jesus goes a long way. So, so yeah, to a certain extent, you're right. Yeah, it's just more of an unfolding of what's already there. The parable, teaching the parables, teaching of any sort of Old Testament teaching. But ultimately, it's, you, just, you have Jesus present. Now, again, there's a, there's a fundamental understanding, too. When Jesus is present in these instances, he's not there to, to you know, admonish or judge. He's there. He's just there as your savior. Yeah. Carol. Can you think of it in terms of the word capital W and the word small w? Yes, you need to make that distinction. That's right. Well, when they're coming out of Jesus' mouth. Yeah, 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 right. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So, this is the big thing, is that Luther's saying the Bible is not words about Jesus, but it delivers the word Jesus. Those words deliver Jesus. So they are intertwined together. Anyways, because, but based on that fundamental premise, though, there's a lot of great fruits that come or results that come out of this. All right, but anyway, that last sentence, however the gospel truly depicts virtues, so that it may also become the instrument by which God changes us, remakes us, and so on. So when Greifenberg is meditating on God's word, she's expecting something to happen to her. And then, so when you read these meditations, you're like, what is going, you know, it's really amazing and bizarre sometimes. But you do see this changing, remaking, happening as you, as, you, as you read her meditations. All right, so anyway, so the whole point, though, is that Greifenberg has no doubt 
that grace and salvation is coming through the meditation on Christ's word. Okay? And then Luther gives three kind of things. You know, it's got to be kind of come outside yourself, preaching. Then you have to basically understand that God's word is speaking to you. And then, obviously, faith, which receives such word. All right, now, okay, so let's kind of move ahead there. That's it. So, it, um, and now Luther does something really, really kind of profound with the infancy narrative is, let us then meditate on the fact that everything which we see happening to our babies really happened to him. So he, he's, he's grounding the meditation of baby Jesus in this world experience. So it's not like Jesus is a unique baby, you know, that doesn't cry ever or doesn't poop in his pants or, you know, I don't know, make things difficult for Mary and Joseph. Just like everybody else. But of course, he's not, and that's why you meditate on him. And this is, this is it. I do not want you to look up at his majesty. No, fix your thoughts on that flesh, that boy Christ. So Luther is saying, if you want to know God, if you want to, you want to experience God, if you want to come in the presence of God, you must, you got to go through the body of Jesus. So you're meditating on the body of Jesus. So that goes to the icon aspect, meditating on this image, but it's more than that. I'm meditating on this baby boy, but yet I'm meditating on God in heaven. All right, so this this is the background of Greifenberg. And the reason why I say that is because I, I, this is something where I, I think we struggle, everyone struggles with the, um, God's word really opening our lives up to see more of life, see more that, that, that we than we see, that we actually experience things as they really are, saturated with God's presence and meaning and profoundness. So, Okay, so that's why Luther is very adamant about, like, you, if you want to experience God, you must go to the flesh of Jesus. Go to the baby Jesus. And then th- that means something, though. That's, that's just not a thought. That actually will heal your soul. So on that second page, he starts, I say this especially to anxious, disturbed, sad consciences. Each one of us have had those consciences in our life. So that they look deliberately at this child and through faith, meditate on him who would make reparation for us. There is no doubt that much consolation will be given to the soul by this. And I love this line. Take the risk and you will experience it. That is so good. What do you got to lose to meditate on a little baby? Everyone loves little babies. Come on. I mean, that, that's basically what he's saying. And as you meditate on this particular baby, your anxiety, your, um, basically your restlessness and your sadness will be, will be consoled. I love that. But again... You're, you're just spending time with God's word. Okay, then I have it in the middle of the paragraph. If you embrace him, 
course, we can embrace, I mean, how do we embrace people? By, again, I always like asking children, how, you know, if they understand the word embrace, let's say hug, right? What are they going to do? Yeah, they're going to put your arms around them. They're not going to be like thinking about something. So this is Luther's getting very physical in his meditation about the baby Jesus. If you embrace him, if you join in praising him, if you laugh with him, that is, if you meditate at length on this most peaceful child, then your mind will also be most tranquil. See how God woos you. Oh, that's so nice. Isn't that nice? Okay, so here's the thing. You're looking at a baby. I mean, Vicar's daughter this morning, holy smokes, we're walking in and she like brightens up and smiling. And you're like, come on, it's a cold heart that can't smile back. But what Luther is saying is that when you do that with Jesus, it, it's not just a nice, cuddly thing, but those things are being delivered to you because God is coming to you. He's showing up. And he's doing this because he's trying to woo you. It's not just a cute thing. It's He's doing that on purpose to make you smile. Yeah, Jeanette. Um, it's been my experience in different chapters of your life. Yes. It's hard to be still mm. and know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's easier for me now in retirement. But oh, yeah. But these young moms, I mean, life and technology and noise and just the hubbub of life doesn't... It takes a lot of effort to find that quiet time. Right. Yeah, you're right. It, but it's so beneficial. I mean, once you do it, you realize how wonderful it is. But, yeah. Yeah. See why, why he says. Because he knows. Take the risk. Yeah. All right, so this is really important because I... Okay, so I had Concordia College kids, Concordia University kids. They came out this last Friday. They stayed overnight, and we spent all day Saturday. And we actually dealt with meditation, this very thing. And the first thing they came in, I had them all, all electronic devices put in a box. Now, all those kids were given the heads up that I was going to do this. So they were prepared mentally. However... However, this was really important for us because, I mean, for them, because of this very reason. To a certain extent, I'm asking them to do the impossible. I mean, kind of, sort of. They're really hard, at least. But like Luther says, take the risk and you will experience it. You think you know what's going on in life. But guess what? You're a hurting sinner And you need someone to tell you to preach. This is Luther's point. Preached word comes out of you and guides you into your ear. So, yeah. So this is, I mean, this has been my own journey, right? Is that meditation for me and prayer, you know, you you come a point in time of your life where you're like, you got nothing left, so you might as well do it. And then you realize, oh, wait, this is what I should have been doing since the beginning. And then, especially, this is where, you know, you mentioned moms. They, moms, but really anybody has this kind of 
have it, what's the most important thing in your life? And you, you, you plan your life around it. Whether it be compulsory or obligatory or, or coercive even. Uh, I got a child that needs to be fed in the middle of the night. Guess what I'm going to do? Yeah, I'm going to do it when it's convenient. No, you're going to get up and you're going you're to feed the child. So you actually have these habits in your life already. This goes back to our original thing. There's no trick on how to meditate. It's the, the, tri- the quote-unquote trick is what you meditate on. And so that takes a lot of guidance from other people. So you never do it by yourself. Because, I mean, you know, if, if everyone's suffering from depression or has a loved one that suffers from depression, a lot of times that's all they can think about. And so that's why you're there to direct their eyes towards Jesus. And it could be just... I mean, I've done this with high school kids. Go, go in the church, sit there for 10 minutes and come back. And I make them. And I say, well, what were you thinking about? Nothing. Okay, fine. Come back next week. Do it again. Um, eventually something comes. This goes back to Luke and the parable of the sower, right? Patience. So anyways, so this is the thing. You're absolutely right. It's hard to find the silence. The thing is, though, there actually is silence to be found. Praise be to God. You do not have to look hard for it. You just You need to spend time. You need to get someone to help you. I mean, that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's sitting right there. Take the risk, and you will experience it. So a lot of great faith. Aaron, and then Barb. Well, and tell me what you think about this. You know, maybe it's better to have nothing going on. But, you know, thinking about my life, there's so often... I suppose it would be humanly possible to find 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Yep. Well, maybe. <laughs> where it's quiet. <laughs> you know, where it's genuinely quiet and uh-huh. not doing anything. Right. But, but actually, like, I feel like so much of my life is is doing things, but that doesn't mean I'm not thinking about things. So, like, I yep. at a time when I almost always, like, work through whatever. If I have, like, grumpy wife syndrome, then I go through the dishes, and I can get over it. Yeah, right. You know, and, but it's like, I, I think, though, like, it also relates to, to the idea of all the noise in culture, where it's like, I'm going to do dishes, and I'm guilty of this regularly, too, but it's like, I'm going to do dishes and listen to a podcast, or have music on, or be doing this at the same time. And it's like, we actually have all these moments in our life where, like, okay, we're driving. You don't have to put the radio on, and maybe that's only five minutes when you're running to the but it's like... That could be your five minutes. Yep. Thing, you know, and, and I think it is like, it's really tempting. And I think culturally, we always have to have noise. Like, oh, yeah. People, like, no one would go and, like, sit in a restaurant and eat alone because, unless they, like, could look at their phone the whole time, you know? Right. Because it's like, oh my gosh, I'm, like, alone with my thoughts, you know? <laughs> but I think there are actually, even in my life where I'm like, I'm moving almost all the time. Yep. There are a lot of moments of, I don't have to be pondering the dishes as I'm washing them or, you know, looking at my carrots intently as I'm cutting them. It's like there's a lot of things I'm doing that don't require any mental right. space, but we too often like fill it with other 
That's right. Okay, so this is really important because Greifenberg, it could be misunderstood when she is, do you guys remember this uh, earlier, the flax and, uh, okay, she's doing her daily chores and then she's kind of thinking these lofty thoughts, right? Us modern tendency is like, oh, that's that's the old version of I, I you know, I'm, I'm a, a podcast. She can't just do her flax, right? Well, actually, that's that's it just it doesn't work, right? I mean, she's not filling her mind with noise by thinking about um, making the linen cloths for the burial shroud of Jesus, right? I mean, but she is she is actually taking up these basic chores and and making them to be a healing balm for her soul. Okay. Whether you're thinking about the burial shroud when you're folding your laundry or thinking about peace and quiet and nothing, both of those are healing balm for your soul because they're both coming from a place of strength, or, or, or desire, I should say, place of desire, rather than fear, fear of silence or, you know, alone with my thoughts. I, uh, but the thing is that we do have to really intentionally think about that. Back in the old days, you didn't have to really think about it, right? Because you had to, if you wanted to hear music, right, you either had to go to the concert hall or you had to do it yourself, you know, you didn't go to the store and hear music blaring over the speakers. So, it, you know, so we have to think about this very critically. All right. But anyways, but either case, though, is really important. That's the whole point about the Mary-Martha discussion. Some of us are like Mary, and we do need that quiet time and, com, com, you know, kind of the contemplative, um, you know, time with Jesus. And no, we just, we need to move. And... But either way, though, we're entering into that time very intentionally. Okay, great. Um, so, again, whether whatever we do, though, we are entering into that in a, on a very kind of human level. That last sentence, which I have bold and underlined on the back of that, for, you know, second page. So in passing, let me say, do not contemplate any signs of this divine majesty so that you will not be afraid, but set your mind on the flesh, the laughter and charms of this little boy. That's so good. So, you know, we don't, this is kind of a Lutheran distinctive, but, you know, we don't think about the sovereignty of God or the providence of God. We don't like to spend a lot of time meditating on those things. First of all, it's an abstraction. Kind of like, well, what does that mean? Sovereignty of God. Okay, he's all he's in control. Okay, great. Luther is way too much of an Old Testament person. He loves physical stuff, the physicality of things. And so that's why he says, we're not going to think about his sovereignty or his omnipotence or, or whatever. We're going to think about this baby boy. <laughs> because this baby boy speaks to me in a way that I can hear or relate. I can touch. I can kiss. I can, t- you know, of course, Greifenberg. Oh, I don't know. If, I don't think this is in the reading. Greifenberg will say, "You've heard this phrase. I can just eat you up." And then she goes off and says, "That's how I feel every time I have the Lord's Supper. <laughs> I can just eat you up." 
<laughs> so, um, so, you know, it's taste. Oh, of course, I think we talked about this earlier when, you know, sweet Jesus, another Les Mis, Les Mis reference there. Anybody read? I did that with the college kids. Oh, sweet Jesus. That's used a lot in the musical. Okay, never mind. Tasting. So you got your tasting. Oh, and then I can't remember again. Uh, I don't think this is in the reading that I gave you. But uh, she talks about the smell of babies. I mean, even, come on. Who does not love the smell of babies, right? I mean, come on. So it's very physical. So like she, she's following Luther in this like, I'm not going to think about how he's everywhere or all-powerful. I'm going to think about how he's right here with me in my arms, tasting good, smelling good, laughing, happy to be with me. That's so good, right? I mean, God's wooing you, right? I, f- I feel like I could handle that. That's, that's nice. Krista. When I was just thinking, Luther, um, I think, came to these uh, um, uh, 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 things that he, when, she, when he realized that he has... Um, had his own children, but then you just can relate a little bit. Yeah, actually, you know, this is written in 1519, though. That, thank you, Krista. I was wondering if anybody was going to mention that. This is, this is about t- almost 15 years before he had a child. Yeah, pretty cool. And also, Greifenberg. Oh, okay, just real quick. It's hard for me to... But Greifenberg's big thing, right? How many children did she have? None. And there's a whole theory that her and her husband lived a chaste marriage, right? Did I mention that before? Okay. If I did, great. If I didn't, there's a theory from some of her writings where she talks about Mary and Joseph. There's a theory about Mary and Joseph living a chaste marriage, and she makes like a self-referential to her own marriage. It's kind of obscure, but you don't really know. Anyways, the whole point is, is that she writes about children. She writes about being pregnant without having been pregnant or having children, but because but she has good ears, and she's a friend. And so her level of empathy is very profound. Holy smokes. I mean, I, I, I have to keep reminding myself that she has not experienced these things firsthand. But she writes as if she has. So the, the same is then with Luther, is that as, as you meditate upon the baby Jesus, you know, the baby's giving you things. So then, of course, when Luther has that baby, you have to wonder, what is he looking at when he sees his little baby? Is he seeing a reflection of Jesus? Gift from God? Well, of course he is. But he's understanding that gift for God through, through the baby Jesus, not through, like, how it makes me feel. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I think it's very, very great. Okay, okay. So I'm really getting to the point, though, is that is that what Luther is laying out in here is very similar to what Greifenberg does. Okay, so she spends a lot of time meditating on Jesus's Jesus's body, right? I mean, um, we'll get to it. I, I think I actually laid out what I said here. I just want to make sure I covered everything here. Um, okay, uh, okay. Despite never being a mother. Okay, great. Oh. This is important for us. I forgot. Okay. Um, so the body of Jesus reveals the divine because the body is only capable of making visible the invisible, the spiritual and divine. That's from John Paul II, Theology of the Body, 19.4. But the body of Jesus delivers God to us in both body and soul. So God enter, is, 
is Jesus, the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ. So that's on the third page, kind of towards the end. Jesus' little body reveals God. This is important for us. The body and only the body makes visible the invisible, the spiritual and divine. Um, I have this every year in confirmation at some time. I will discuss whether ghosts are real or not. We're on Halloween. Did it. We just did it. <laughs> um, and the, the fundamental premise about ghosts are um, they don't have a body. They can't hurt you. They have no physicality. In fact, I don't. If, you, if, if anyone ever actually sees a ghost, it's strange and unusual, and it probably is not a ghost. That's what I usually say because you make a distinction between ghosts and demons. But ghosts are bodiless. That's what makes them ghosts. Okay, so God, God is not a ghost. He's a person that has a body and so communicates with us who have bodies. So the body and only the body is the means in which the invisible becomes visible. All right, so that's why Luther is so intent on the little baby Jesus, but not just the baby Jesus. This same line of argument comes later for any like historic nerds out there like me during the Marburg Qualiques, where he's arguing about the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper with Ehrlich Zwingli. <laughs> if you want to look that up. but He's very adamant. He's got this great line where he says, I want no other God but than the one that came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. That's great. Okay. Why did I bring that up? Oh, yeah, because the visible and the invisible. So this is really great that Luther's already bringing this up now because this is very helpful for us in our lives where we understand that mental disease is physiological. Um, you know, where our bodies are falling apart. And, you know, just the kind of emotional thing, too. We just need somebody to, to hug and somebody to hug us back. All right. So, um, okay, yeah, great, take the risk. Oh, and so I, I list a bunch of quotes here how... Greifenberg echoes what is um, said by Luther. By the way, too, I, you know, we did this several years ago, and I, I got to make sure that the vicar, vicar Smith gets this for our Christmas Eve prayer, where we talk about um, Jesus being swaddled on our tongue. But I can't remember. I think we put as we is uh, something about laying Jesus on the manger of our tongues. I have to look that up. Because Greifenberg will use that same imagery. She'll use crib and then swaddled with our hearts. Isn't that great? I love that. Okay. Anyway, so you might see this as what I'm saying. Christmas is coming up. Be here for no time, before no time. All right. All right, now, the thing is, though, is that as Luther talks about... So let's flip the page here. As Luther uh, talks about meditating on the flesh of the baby Jesus... Greifenberg, of course, doesn't start the baby Jesus after he's born in the manger. What is she, when does she start it? In the womb. And this is on page 284, which uh, is not part of your reading. Uh, when I made these copies, I had a whole other way. I thought we were going to do something different. But I'm not going to. Okay. Anyways, how does Greifenberg meditate on Jesus' body? She praises Christ's body 
anatomically. Every little part of the prenatal Christ is lauded for its own sake and also for the devotional or symbolic lesson it portrays. And here's a quote. Blessed be the dear little ears of the heart that grant our prayers such a gracious hearing and take our need to heart. Does anyone know what Bible story is behind that sentence? There's a famous Old Testament person who asks for ears on his heart. Solomon. Solomon asks for a hearing heart. Not for, he doesn't ask for wisdom. There's no wisdom word in the Old Testament. It's, he asks for a hearing heart. The Old Testament is not abstract. Wisdom is an abstract word. Point to wisdom. You can't. You can point to someone who's wise or point to a wise saying on a page, but you can't actually point to wisdom, unless you point to Jesus, who is wisdom. That's beside the point. Okay. All right. Anyways, so she, she uses the Solomon thing to help her understand, but she's, she's singing about Jesus, or she's praising Jesus' heart. Blessed be the vena cava, which is a container, and as it were, the pitcher of the heart, through which this spring of redemption runs, which joins the right and larger part, Anybody remember their high school biology class? I mean, she is meditating on every single part. I left out all the parts about, like, I mean, she talks about his brain. She talks about his neck. I mean, it's, it's really, she's meditating on the body of Jesus. Praise and lauded be you, pulmonary artery as well. You are a chariot of the vital spirits and who play ball with the lungs and the heart. <laughs> Okay, that's just an ex- more of an extreme example. I kind of like Luther's example where I'm just cuddling with the baby Jesus. She goes, she gets real scientific. But um, it just goes to show, like, actually how, how smart she is. I mean, she's like a, she has a doctor's knowledge. But at the same time, what, it is, what does it mean to meditate upon Jesus? Why, why stop on the outside? Why not go on the inside? So, okay. Great. Now, um, the, uh, okay, great. So this is, again, I want this all, so, okay, so next week, I promise, next week, or, I'm sorry, two weeks, we're going to get to that reading that I gave to you. We are going to cover two main things, and only two things, because we need to move on, because A, I'm sure everyone's getting bored, and B, I just, there's more things to, more women to find out about. Okay, so next time we meet... We are going to talk about um, the Magnificat. That's, that's the main reading. It's about the Magnificat. So what we're going to do, oh, then we're going to come back. We're going to come back to something we just started. I kinda, we kind of opened a can of worms a little bit last week, and I want to get back to it just because I wasn't quite ready to talk about it. But um, is Next week we're going to talk about uh, Mary. We're going to talk about Mary, and then we're going to talk about joy, Mary and joy. Anybody? Don't make a joke about Mary and Joy. Okay. I knew one of you guys were thinking about it. Donna. I especially hope everybody gets to read 284 and 285 after she, when she goes to see Elizabeth. Yeah. Oh, no, page two, not 284, 285. What is it? Uh, no, 244. 244. 244 and 245. I, I just think that's so wonderful. She talks about how important it is for us to be together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. 
Fantastic. And we will have a little time next time, too, maybe today even, just to talk about anything that's on your mind or anything special that you want to bring up. But, holy smokes, yes. Um, I forgot the line in there. She basically says those who are filled with the Holy Spirit have to get to share. Like, they want to share it with their friends. And there's this great sharing happening between Mary and Elizabeth. Super great. Which actually then goes back to Jeanette's point earlier. You have these people. um, Friends. Real friends. All right. So, coming back to our discussion of babies who died before baptism. I I, I wanted to actually show you a little bit. Because I mentioned that she echoes Luther. I actually want want to show you that section. Just because... It's important for us to know these things because babies die all the time before baptism and we need to be able to provide solace to ourselves and to our friends. Um, Yeah. So anyways, page 204 of Greifenberg, you know, I, 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 I think she's a little cold here. So this is the one time she's not really empathetic. But for this reason, Christian parents should not be too saddened. I'm sure maybe the German's a little bit more empathetic, but it's kind of like, yeah, don't worry about it. Um, By the loss of their unborn and thus unbaptized children, God is not limited by his own conditions and means. To be sure, he can hold dispensing with baptism against a person if baptism is disparaged, but not when it's impossible to carry it out. He's lying in the womb, saved those in the womb as well. If he had not intended thereby to benefit them, then perhaps he would have come into the world in another way. But for the sake of babes lying in the womb, he too lay in the womb, thereby thereby intending to make them holy and to take them into heaven. I love that. Now, she's she's making a couple things, a couple assumptions here. She's talking about Christians, you know, mothers who are in church, been baptized, received the Lord's Supper. I mean, um, and her line of argument is... Exactly the same line of argument for blessing graves. So if anyone's been at a committal, if I, if I know the grave has not been blessed, I, we say a blessing on the grave. It's the same. Jesus lying in the ground for three days has sanctified and blessed all graves. I mean, that's, so as Jesus is laid in the womb, he's blessed wombs. Um, now, what I, I do like about her, though, is that she says here, she connects it with this, this whole understanding with baptism against a person if baptism is disparaged. Meaning, if you re- hate your baptism, God might say, all right, I hate it too. Now, God could say, I, I'm really sorry that we couldn't get your baby to baptize, but I know you, you desired it, and so, yes, I, I desire it too. So he's not, he's not inhibited by his, as, as he says here, limited by his own conditions and means. Ah, did I quote that other part? Er, before this, um, on page two, or actually it might be 202. I don't have my book with me. but um, Oh, no, it's at the bottom of that page. The Holy Spirit is not bound to human reason, age, tongue, or mouth but so free in his movements that he can communicate them to children. But that whole notion of like he's not bound to these things, this is where, where we, we, we are like, okay, 
God can do that because he's God. On the flip side, you say, well, why do I, have my, why do I need to have my baby baptized? Okay. You just disparage baptism. You put yourself in a bad spot, okay? It is like, I, I have a lot of examples in, in life about this. I'll give you the most clean one. Um, you know what? I had a really great breakfast. I'll just have crusty toast and you know water for lunch. No one do that. No, you say, want more, please. Yes, more. So baptism is the same idea. And the Lord's Supper is the same idea. And God's Word's the same idea. You're like, I'm already baptized. What do I have to go to church for? Uh, because you want more good stuff. This is how we're made to be. Um, Robert Capon has a great thing. Capon, he's quoted in our, our uh, margin comments quite a bit. He goes, um, desiring not the good things... By not desiring the good things of God is like you desiring to put your nose in a meat slicer. It's painful, it's pretty stupid, and you get what you get. <laughs> so to disparage God's gifts, any of his gifts, is just kind of stupid, silly, painful, and you could get what you get. Yeah. So this is not a false antithesis. This is not a sign where we say, oh, well, if I, yeah, it's, we want all of this because God made it this way. Aaron. Well, it just seems like there's a couple of things. It seems like there's a best or an ideal. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's born. You baptize them. They live in Christ. Yep. Um, and then, I mean, like, there's even cases, and it's in the church, you know, but there are even cases I feel like I've heard of where a baby's born, they're going to live only right. minutes, whatever, and somebody baptizes them. Oh, absolutely. So it's like, it counts. It's not, honestly, <laughs> if you were to do it the best ideal way, you're at the church, you're with the pastor, you're with your congregation. Yeah, yeah. You're saying the words of the liturgy, but it's like, okay, that's not... Yeah, it's all about, it's all about, yeah, like you said, what's best, meaning, you know, it, it, but again... We think about this is that God, whether Jesus is just sitting with you doing nothing next to you or he's teaching you about some Old Testament lesson, those are both pretty nice. Okay, I mean, we would, we would like both of those. So this is the same idea. Jesus is with your child. Now he's with you, with him even more. And you, you know, it's, it, you, just, you just want more of it. That's, I mean, that's basically the basic premise. Yeah. Okay, so that's a baby that's baptized, not in the church. And, and so, like, under that, it's like a baby that dies in the womb. And, you know, I, I feel like probably every mother who carries a child at some point says a prayer for that child. It's not like, oh, I'm pregnant and I'm not going to think about this for right away. Like, right. It's impossible. I mean, I have so many people when I'm pregnant telling me, oh, we're praying for you. Like, the whole body of Christ is praying for that child. And, Who's to say that, you know, God doesn't take those prayers as... Um, well, well, yeah, he does. I mean, that's... So, okay, so this is... Uh, yep. Uh, Janet, you had a question? You had your hand raised? I do. Yep. This, maybe this is a little out. No, no, go ahead. So, it says here that um, Luther rejected the teaching of Right. Uh, 
They're not Catholic. Right. You know, that limbo thing always gave me a little pause. But <laughs> maybe I missed this when I did the catechism. <laughs> this is probably a detail. Maybe it was going. Um, but does the Catholic Church still teach that limbo is a thing? Or? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I don't think they use the word limbo anymore. Yeah. I, actually, when I got married the first time in the Catholic Church, I had to take a class. And when I got all done, I went up to the priest and I said, you didn't say anything about limbo. Right. You don't teach about limbo? And he said, yeah. Don't really talk about that. No, no, yeah, it, it's been, it's been, it's been, uh, it's, it's been um, modified, let's put it that way. But it, th- that main, that main sentence is in relation to 1542. I'm sorry, yeah, so that, that, thank you for pointing that out, is that, um, so in this, in his meditation or thinking about this doctrine of limbo, he, he really kind of, he, he rejected it, but it had very practical concerns now. What does this mean then for? But don't Catholics still ask for masses to be purchased for people who die? That's I mean, purgatory. Yeah, that's purgatory. So that's that's different. Yeah, and that that's that's yeah. That's the big thing. Okay. But the but the point the point of me bringing this up is not about limbo. It's actually about um, the mother is a believing Christian. It is to be hoped that her heartfelt cry and deep longing to bring her child to be baptized will be accepted by God as an effective prayer, and not just the mother, as Aaron was saying. All these other people. So, um, but Luther speaks of hope and not so much certainty. Where Greifenberg is way more confident. She is just like, this is a thing. Now, I think Luther is basically, he can't, like a lot of things that Luther was really kind of thinking about, you know, he can't, he can't answer that question definitively from the Bible where it says this, this, and this. Both of these are upholding God's mercy and promise. That's the spectrum. It's, it's all about God's promise to save his loved ones. And Luther's kind of over here and Greffenberg's over here, but they're still um, basing their thoughts on the same thing. But anyways, the whole point, though, is that, is that she's not outlandish. She's not like, where did she come up with this stuff? Luther's already said it. He's laid the foundation for it, and she's just kind of taken it to another level. Why would she take it to another level? Because she is a woman. I mean, that's my personal opinion. Based on everything I said, I mean, you know, Luther, Luther as Chris was like, well, this time he is, he is a father by, by 1542, but he, he has, what, he's lost children? I mean, this, he is, he's talking like a father, but again, he still hasn't had this experience of holding this child in the womb. He never will be. So that's why I think Greifenberg, through her empathy, again, has really something more definitive to say. Yeah, Janet. Does, but does the, I mean, does the Bible really talk about no. infant baptism? Oh, uh, yes. Now, because infants are included the word all. <laughs> everybody. Everybody means everybody in the Bible. So, yeah. Now, the, the question is a little bit of a, um, well, the Bible, the Bible doesn't actually talk about adult baptism either. So, I mean, that's the kind of the thing. It's like, okay, well. I mean, the examples we see in the Bible are. are well, uh, adults in households. 
And especially the one with Peter, where the young girl comes and gets him, and then she ends up being part of that household, and they're baptized. I mean, okay. Um, the earliest historical record is from St. Polycarp, who has uh, his grave. Basically, he's, he said he's been following Jesus for 80 years or whatever, which is his whole life. So he, of course, must have been baptized as a child. Um, but the thing is, though, is it really based on uh, Matthew 28 and the baptismal mandate to, bat, you know, to go and baptize all nations. All nations means everybody, all peoples. <laughs> nations is, is, a, is a translation. It's, it's all peoples. Yeah. Is the argument that the don't, people don't, when people don't baptize the baby, have their babies baptized, they can't, they can't believe well, yeah, right. So, so that's part that now, that's they're not old enough to. This goes into the other kind of discussion we had in the last week about age of communion. Okay, now Greifenberg, of course, discusses the fact that not only are the wombs of a believing mother sanctified by the 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 the, the line of the baby Jesus in Mary's womb, is that also the women have received Holy Communion and are sharing that same blood with the child, right? So in a sense, they have communed in the Holy Supper. Well, Greifenberg bases her argument on that with the same arguments for infant baptism. So um, Luther, did I I put that in here? Yeah, I think I put that in here. Uh, Treatise 1528, Luther writes, "When, when they say children cannot believe... How can they be sure of that? Where is the scripture by which they would prove it and how which they would build? They imagine this, I suppose, because children do not speak or have understanding, but such a fancy is deceptive, yea, altogether false. And we cannot build on what we imagine. There are scripture passages that tell us that children may and can believe, though, I should say, though, though they do not speak or understand. And he brings out... Luke 1, John the Baptist. Um, and that's the thing with Greifenberg, of like communing. So John the Baptist communes with Jesus when they... Yeah, jumps for joy. That, that's going to be that whole discussion next time. We're going to discuss those three pages on joy. She says joy like 50 times or something like that. It's crazy. Um, okay, great. Uh, okay, great. So this is something really important for... Greifenberg has a really rich understanding of children. We run out of time, so we can't really talk about that. But this rich understanding of children is so foundational to how we do things at St. John, which we already kind of talked about last week. But um, the emphasis is on the Holy Spirit and not on the child's understanding. So this is the problem with a lot of the argument now not only with infant baptism, but also the age of communion, is the emphasis is rarely put first primary on the Holy Spirit. It's usually on the child's understanding. That is the wrong first step. Just because the first step always has to be Jesus' first step, not our first step, okay? So Jesus always takes the it's the footsteps in the stand. You, know, you ever see that? You, you know that, right? Oh, it gets me every time when I read that. I look back and those are Jesus. Okay, we, uh, happy to stick around and talk, but um, we, we should stop. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. If anybody didn't get the, you know, if I didn't have any of the readings last week, but I did put, if anybody lost theirs, never picked one up, there's, there's a reading out there. So think about, well, think about whatever you want to think about or meditate on, but we're going to talk about, <laughs> we're going to talk about joy, I'm going to try to talk about joy and Mary, but next time we're done. This, we're not going to do any more, I promise. We've got to get to Argula von Grimbach. No, we're not meeting next I'm sorry. Yeah, next time. December 6th.